Right, well, um, I'm sure everyone has seen these kind of like American TV dramas that you get, like the death row dramas. Um, you know, when you've got someone, they've been convicted of a murder and they're on death row and the date has been set, but, you know, kind of like it's going through the courts and will it be put back, you know, so there they are on death row. They know they're going to die, but they don't actually know when. And, um, and if you think of it, you know, about it, that, that is the position that everyone is in anyway, isn't it? We're, we're all actually on death row. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of one... <laughs> Exactly, yes. And so there's one thing we can be pretty sure of, and that's that we're all going to die. So what we're going to look at tonight is, or start tonight, it'll be, you know, sort of like it'll need a, a couple of talks. We're going to ask the question, what happens when you die? And we're just going to definitively answer this from the Bible. Now, we're going to be absolutely all over the place, okay, Genesis right through to Revelation, but uh, bear with me. And, uh, you know, if you can't find the scriptures in time, don't worry, I'll, I'll read them all out, so no problem. So, what happens when you die? But uh, before we do what happens when you die, let's, let's, let's deal with uh, what is alive first. What does it mean to actually be alive? So we're not going to understand what it means to be dead, until we understand what it means to be alive. So if you go to Genesis and find Genesis chapter 2, and uh, let's see... Um, where God creates the first human being. When we have our definitions of what it means to be alive, then we can start looking at what it means to be dead and what happens to you when you are. Now then, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we read this. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, you could translate that quite equally, that the Lord breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life, and the man became a living soul. It can be translated in that way too. So we're going to look, what exactly is a man then? So here we have the creation of Adam, the first person. Now let's, let's deal with the physical aspect, because here we see that uh, Adam had a body that was formed from the dust of the ground. It was made from the elements, the chemicals that were already existing in the world that God has made. So let's, let's, let's just ask the question, what are we physically? Well, in the average human being, there is enough water to fill a 10-gallon barrel. Right? And that's what you are. Most of us, our bodies are water. There's enough fat for seven bars of soap, although this, of course, can vary from person to person. Some, there's probably only enough for four or five. Uh, others, maybe 10 or 12. You know, but on average, enough fat to make seven bars of soap. There's enough carbon in a human body for 9,000 lead pencils. There's enough phosphorus for 2,200 match heads. There's enough iron in a human body for a three-inch nail. And there's enough lime to whitewash your average-sized hen house. And there are other things, a bit of magnesium, a bit of sulphur. But at today's prices, talking about the human body and what it's made of, 50 quid the lot. Physically, that's what you're worth, okay? So that was Adam's body, all right. 
But what we see here is that God made his body. So there was the body just lying there on the ground, okay? And what happens is the breath of life enters him, or the spirit of life from God enters him. And then it says he became a living being, or became a living soul, all right? So you can, you know, sort of like interchange these in, you know, modern translations, go for more for living being. Some of the older translations go for became a living soul. But um, the point is that here was Adam's body, and it was when the spirit of life from God entered into him that then he became a living soul. Okay. So the result is that you have a body. As a human being, you have a body. And also, as a human being, you have a spirit, the breath of life. And of course, um, in, in, in the Hebrew, the, 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 the same word is used for spirit as for soul. But in the New Testament, there's a different Greek word for spirit and for soul. But in, in the Old Testament, soul and spirit are kind of like the same word. But the point is, you have a body, and you have a spirit, or the breath of life, and that comes from God. And therefore, having those two things, you become a living soul or a living being. Now, let's knock a common misunderstanding on the head in regards to terminology here. Christians traditionally speak in terms that, that you have a soul that needs to be saved. <laughs> All right. That, 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 that the soul is almost a God-shaped bit of us that needs to be saved. So that is actually incorrect. The way the Bible uses the word soul or being is as in if you said of a little old lady that she's a dear old soul. That's the way the Bible uses it. So the point is you have a body, you have a spirit, the spirit of life from God, and therefore you are a living soul or a living being. Okay. And just to notice that this spirit that we have, this breath of life, that is impersonal. So your, your body is your physical <laughs> bit of you, that's just a bit of you, you are not your body. Your spirit is a kind of a non-corporeal bit of you, but like your body, it's not you. But when the two come together, then a human being comes into existence, that is you. So the point is, we're all souls here. And, uh, you know, and of course in you know, sort of like old English, the SOS, save our souls, the point was it means save us, okay? So you have a body, you have a spirit, and you are a living soul. Now, you should be in Genesis 2. I'm going to read verse 17 now. And we're going to see the consequence that God said there would be if Adam and Eve sinned. Now in verse 17, God says this, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, the Hebrew literally doesn't say that. To translate this literally, what you've got here is God saying, for when you eat of it, dying you shall surely die. So what God is saying, that a twofold death is going to happen if Adam and Eve sin. 
And of course, what you've got is that the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, <coughs> their spirits died within them. So there was a spiritual death. This, this spirit, this breath of life from God, think of it that in our bodies we encounter and experience the material world. And if your body is alive, you can experience it. If your body's dead, you can't. But our spirit was there so that we could also encounter the spiritual universe, i.e. the Lord. Now, what's happening here is that because Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits have died. They're cut off from God. And this is, and this is what the Bible means when it talks about being dead in sin. Because the moment that they sinned, their spirits died within them, that was immediate. They were cut off from God and they ran away from him. All right? So that's why we need to be born again. And when we believe in Jesus, our spirit, which is dead towards God, but not towards the devil and evil spirits, that's why people end up in the occult. All right? But that the human spirit is dead to God because of sin unless you're born again, but not dead to the dark side, if you like. And as I say, that, that's how Satan uh, gets hold of people through the occult. So the point is, there's a spiritual death here, and then, as a result of that, physical death will follow later. So what God is saying, if you sin, Adam, if you disobey me, dying, you shall surely die, i.e. your spirit will die within you, and because that spirit is the breath of life from God, your body will eventually die as well, and that is when you get actual physical death. So we can actually begin to move on now and to see a definition of what death actually is. If you go to Genesis chapter 3 now, and verse 19, and let's just see this physical death in detail that, 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 that God warned Adam about. In verse 19 it says, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the spiritual death meant that eventually their physical bodies would die as well and would just simply return into the chemical compositions of which they were originally made. But let's now define death. When the spirit of life, or the breath of life that comes from God, when the spirit of life, or the breath of life that comes from God, enters a body, human life exists. That happens at conception. So, when God breathes the breath of life into a human body, even if it's just one cell, human life exists. So therefore, and remember, this, this spirit, this breath of life, is impersonal. It's more like a force, it's not personal. You are personal, I am a soul, I have a spirit, I have a body. But because of sin, when we're born, our spirit is dead. That's why we need to be born again. And obviously, one day, our bodies will eventually die as well. So death is when the spirit leaves the body. This breath of life, this spirit of life, this power of life that God 
puts into a human body and makes it alive, when that spirit leaves the body, then that person dies. The body no longer has life in it. Just go to the epistle of James, where we can um, see this stated clearly. And in James, and chapter 2, and verse 26. Don't worry if you can't follow it, I'll read each, each, each one out. And he says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So, what James is saying here, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to have faith, but you're not living the Christian life, well, faith without works is dead. And he says in the same way that when the spirit leaves the body, dead. There's a body there, but it's lifeless, there's no life in it. So, he says, don't have faith that doesn't have any life in it. So, we can see here that death is when the spirit leaves the body. So then, what have we got so far? We're saying that when the spirit enters the body, a living soul comes into being. When the spirit leaves the body, then there is physical death. All right. So then, when that happens, the body just rots in the grave or whatever. We saw that in Genesis 3.19, didn't we? Returns to dust, okay? Um, what happens to your spirit? What happens to your spirit? Go to Ecclesiastes. Now, one is always very careful in trying to establish anything, shall we say, doctrinal from Ecclesiastes. Uh, however, this is not the only verse that uh, will be on, on this particular point. We'll be back to it later. But Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 7. Um, let's read from verse 6. It says, Remember him, i.e. talking about the Lord, Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken. Poetic language about this power of life from God being cut off. Before the picture is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So what we have here is it's saying that the body returns to the ground, we've seen that already, the spirit, this impersonal force of life that comes from God that made you a person or a living soul in the first place, that spirit returns to God who gave it. Now we'll be back onto that further and we'll see a verse that establishes that same thing in the New Testament will be there shortly. So we've seen what happens to the body, we've seen what happens to the spirit. When there's death, the body just goes into the ground and starts to rot, it's completely inert. The spirit, this impersonal power of life from God, goes back to God, as it were, because it came from him, it returns to him. Now, the question that we've got to ask is, but what happens to you? What happens to the living soul? Because here is the point. When you just have a body without a spirit, there is no person there, there's no soul. So you have the spirit from God and you have the body. When the spirit enters the body, there you have a living soul, a living person. But remember, we are created in the image of God, which means in many, many ways the human race is like God. Now, one of the attributes of God is that he is eternal. He has always existed, and he will always exist. Now, then, obviously, it's not true of us that we have always existed, because we're seeing here the point when human life comes into being. But here's the point. We are immortal. 
having been created, you, the person, the living being, the soul, will always exist, i.e. you will never cease to exist. So we've seen the body returns to the ground, the spirit goes back to God who gave it. Now, and here's what we really need to know, isn't it? We need to know what happens to you. We need to know what happens to me, because we will exist forever. So what we're asking is, what is beyond the grave? That's what we're asking. What happens to people when they die? And does the same thing happen to everyone when they die? Well, of course, the answer to that is certainly not. That's what the death of Jesus was all about, so that there could be a difference in what happens when we die. So th this is the point. We've defined life, we've defined death. But what we've got to say, we know that our bodies die, we know that our spirits return to God, but you and me, the people, all those millions of people out there, all the millions of people who have died today, their number came up, the, the switch was thrown for them today, what has happened to them? That's the question we're going to answer. Now, in answering it, we're going to look in the Bible at ten places. Now, I'm going to just read through this list of ten places, and it's, it's going to be a bit oh, overwhelming, but don't worry, we're going to define and look at each one in the process of these talks. We're going to look at hell. We're going to look at somewhere called Sheol. We're going to look at a place called Hades. We're going to look at somewhere called Tartarus. We're going to look at the bottomless pit. We're going to see a place called the abyss. We're going to see somewhere that the Bible refers to as Abraham's side, or the bosom of Abraham. That was an idiom in Jewish thought. You remember the disciple whom Jesus loved at the Last Supper, he reclined on Jesus' breast. The Jews would do that. They, they ate lying down, like on their elbows. And if, if someone had a place of honour with the host, they'd actually lie on their breast. And so Abraham's bosom became a kind of a, a, a idiom for a place. We're going to look at paradise and find out about paradise. We're going to look at Gehenna, we're going to look at the lake of fire, and of course we're just going to have a quick look at heaven. Now let me say first of all that out of that list, lots of them are different names for the same place, alright? So, so we're not actually looking at ten separate places, but there are different places in that list called by different names. Now the other thing we're going to see is that in the Bible you get a revelation that is progressive. So that what happens is, the earlier you are in the Bible, back at Genesis, you get a little bit of the picture. And as you go through, by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, you've got much more detail. So you get glimpses in the Old Testament, you get an unfolding picture, like a, a camera panning out from a scene. And in the early part of the scene, you can make out bits and pieces, but you don't get the whole picture, you don't get the full panorama. What happens is that as the camera eventually pans out more and more, eventually you see the whole picture and everything falls into place. Now as we go through the Bible, starting in Genesis and working right through the last book of the Bible, we're going to see this the, the camera moving out and we see bits and pieces here and there, but we'll see all the information unfolding progressively until we've got the, the whole picture. So that's really how the form that these talks are going to take. We're just, as it were, going to be going through that list of these ten names, these ten places, or as you'll see, it's not actually ten places, it's not as many as that, because some of the names are synonyms. They're 
different names for the same place. We're going to see how it all unfolds as we um, continue along the way. Now then, the, the first one we've got to start with is hell. And when you, you talk about death, probably across certainly the Western world throughout history, the two words that come to mind are heaven and hell. All right. This is the, the, the general perception, heaven and hell. Now, obviously, as we're going to see, heaven is a reality. But as in so many things pertaining to the Christian faith, all right, there's a total misunderstanding here. And the way that people conceive it as hell is where unbelievers go. That is actually a misunderstanding. Technically, there isn't anywhere called hell. It's, it's not kind of... The Bible does not teach, as it were, that if you're an unbeliever, you go to heaven. If you're an unbeliever, oh, sorry, if you're a believer, you go to heaven. If you're an unbeliever, you go to hell. It doesn't actually teach that. Let me explain why. Hell, H-E-L-L, -L, our word hell, is a transliteration into English of a particular Hebrew word. Now, a transliteration is different from a translation. A transliteration means that you take the original word in its original language and you simply convert it equivalent letter for equivalent letter into the language you're transliterating it into. And our English word hell is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, sheol. Now, sheol was number two on our list, okay? So we'll be moving that uh, to that in a minute, all right? So what we're establishing, the word hell, try and forget it. Try and put it to one side. It doesn't exist in the way that possibly you've been led to believe. It's simply an English transliteration for a Hebrew word used in the Old Testament, sheol. But there's another problem with hell, this word hell, in our English Bibles. Not only is it used wrongly, but it's used in completely the wrong places as well. And the Bible translations took, translators took this word hell and made it a blanket term to denote completely different Greek words in the New Testament. So you can read through loads and loads and loads of verses in the New Testament which mention hell. Alright? And you can say to yourself, aha, aha, yeah, actually now I know the hell, this is really the equivalent Hebrew sheol. But the problem is that it's using it for words that Sheol wouldn't relate to either. It's used as a blanket term, and it's completely wrong. However, in your better translations, at least in most of the places, if not all, where the word hell is used in the English, you'll normally find a little note. And if you go down into the footnote of your Bibles <coughs> on the relevant page, it will tell you which Greek word it's actually translating. So by the time we finish this, you'll actually know what all of these places are, even though, as I say, this word hell gets used in our English Bible. So um, therefore, just put hell on, on the shelf and try and forget about it. Hell is simply the English transliteration for the Hebrew word sheol, which we'll move on to next, but gets used for loads and loads of different Greek words, which all mean totally different things. So, so it's a case of real bad translation. This is why ultimately it, Bible teaching does need to try and get back to the original language. Right, so, so hell, number one, bang, you, that's done. Now then, sheol, sheol. This is 
Hell is simply this Hebrew word, Sheol, translated into English, or transliterated into English, all right? So what is this Hebrew word Sheol? And it comes up in the Old Testament a lot. Well, in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word Sheol is a kind of a, an, an, an all-covering term for the place of the departed dead. So it just means where the dead go, all right? And it actually comes from the verb to make hollow. Now that will make more sense why the word Sheol should come from hollow as we proceed through this. But this Hebrew word, all right, simply means the place of the departed dead. Now then, more translation problems, I'm afraid, because in the NIV, for instance, and I, I use the NIV, all right, New International Version, I am NIV positive, all right, I'm afraid. Um, the nearly inspired version, right, a mere 5,000 mistakes of translation. But don't worry, because there's no other Bibles that are any better. They're all, you, you just have to decide your poison, as it were. Um, but in the NIV, this word Sheol gets translated, would you believe, as grave or pit. Now, whereas, yes, the word grave is all associated with dead, grave is where the body goes, not where you go, not where the departed dead goes, and pit, well, it could be anything, couldn't it, you see? So, bad translation. And uh, so, again, always check your footnotes, all right? There'll be a little note where you get pit, grave, and it should, uh, say, sheol, if you're reading the Old Testament, okay? So, we're actually going to have a good look at this place now in the Old Testament. Let's ask, this, this place of the departed dead, where is it? Well, remember um, that, that, that the actual word comes from the verb to make hollow. And uh, what I'm going to show you is that this place, Sheol, this place of the departed dead, is deep underground. It is a subterranean place. It is literally somewhere hollowed out in the centre of the earth. You'll see this shortly. But before we move on to where it is, we're going to ask, so who goes there? And obviously, the, 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 the two categories of people we're concerned with are believers and unbelievers, aren't they? So we're going to ask the question, This in the Old Testament, this place, Sheol, the place of the departed dead, and I'll show you where it is shortly, we're going to ask the question, who goes there? Right, go to Psalms. And again, if, if, if I get there before you, don't worry, I shall read each verse out, no problem. Psalm 9 and verse 17. Now then, we read this, the wicked return to the grave. Now then, those of you who have found this, can you see that little note there? A little C or an M or something. If you go down to the bottom of the page, lo and behold, it says Sheol, right? The place of the departed dead. So here we have the wicked return to Sheol. The wicked return to the place of the departed dead, all the nations that forget God. Well, I think that that establishes pretty well, doesn't it, that unbelievers, when they die, go to Sheol. Go to Proverbs. Proverbs is after Psalms. And Proverbs, and chapter 9, and verse 13, where we read... Um, oh, we're going to read from verse 13 to 18. 
The woman folly is loud. This, this is describing being a twit, not living by the wisdom of God in the scripture, likening you know, folly to a woman. The Bible likens wisdom to a woman as well. The woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. It's picturing her as a prostitute. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. Lo and behold, the word grave, if you look at the bottom, Hebrew, Sheol, the place of the dead. So that, I think, establishes beyond all doubt that this place, Sheol, the place of the departed dead, it's where unbelievers went in Old Testament times, it was a place where unbelievers went when they died. But go, go to Genesis now. Genesis 37. Because we need to know what happens to believers, don't we? Now then, Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to read verses 34 and 35. Now then, this is when Jacob has been led to believe by his sons that Joseph has been killed. You remember the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, but then they led Jacob to believe that he'd been killed. Now listen to what Jacob said. Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Now then, can you see the two things that Jacob says there? Firstly, grave, look in the note, down at the bottom it's Sheol. Alright? Firstly, Jacob is expecting to go to Sheol when he dies. He was a believer. He has been led to believe that Joseph is dead. Joseph was a believer. So not only does Jacob as a believer expect to go to Sheol when he dies, he expects to meet Joseph there, who he thinks has died. You see? So we can establish something else. Believers went to this place called Sheol as well. And you see, this is why the word hell is so misleading as a transliteration of Sheol. Remember I said that as we start at the beginning of the Bible, we're going to get a little bit of the picture. But the details aren't going to come into view until we proceed right the way through the Bible. And what we're seeing here is that this place, Sheol, remember I said it was simply a word from the verb to make hollow that simply came to represent the place where the dead go. And here's the point. It's the place where... All the dead people went, believers or unbelievers, they all went to this same place called Sheol, the place of the dead. And this is why hell is so unhelpful as representing Sheol, because of course in modern thinking, hell is where unbelievers go, not believers, you see. So I say try and get rid of hell, because it's, it's not, a, not a very helpful word in that sense. This word Sheol in the Old Testament represented simply the place where all the departed dead went, whether believers or unbelievers. 
Now, just notice one other thing that Jacob says. He's expecting, obviously he's expecting that when he dies, he'll go to Sheol. And, and he's here thinking that Joseph was there because he thought Joseph was dead, even though Joseph was actually alive. And he said, in mourning will I go down into Sheol. So he was expecting to go down into this place of the dead. Which brings us to the question of location. So where is Sheol, this place of the departed dead? Well, what I'm going to show you is under the earth. It's actually in the earth. It's underneath us somewhere. Possibly even the absolute centre of the earth. I don't know. I just know that it is down there. Now, go to Numbers. All right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all right. Numbers chapter 16. And I'm going to read from verse 25. And uh, this is referring to unbelievers. Numbers 16, verse 25. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Now, there's a family here that is in total disobedience to things that the Lord has said, and they're about to be judged. And Moses is separating everyone away from them, because God's judgment is going to come on them. He says, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, and what's happened is that, that Korah has tried to do a rebellion thing against Moses as God's anointed leader. And of course Moses was God's appointed leader, not Korah. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things. And it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. I, when people die, their body, they die normally, like their bodies die, blah, blah, blah. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, check your notes, Sheol, bottom of the Bible, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol, says grave, but it should be Sheol, with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. They went down physically, down into the place of the dead. These guys didn't believe in, they didn't die in the normal way. They went, you know, straight down, as it were. But go to Samuel, now they run believers, all right, but go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, and um, chapter 28. And we want verse 11. 1 Samuel 28, and uh, you'll remember that this is the, um, the, the story when Samuel, who was God's anointed king, he was a believer, he prophesied and blah, 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 and uh, remember he rebelled against God and he got involved in the occult, didn't he? 
and um, you know, and, and sort of like eventually God's judgment came on him, and he goes to to a medium because he, he wants he wants to hear from Samuel, like the prophet who who helped him, who had died. All right. Now then, the woman asked, "Whom shall I bring up for you?" Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me, your Saul? You see, she, she was expecting a demon. She wasn't actually expecting Samuel. This is the exception that proves the rule. If you try and get in touch with the dead, you'll get through the demons, you see. The king said, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up, up, up out of the ground. See, it's spirit because Samuel hasn't got a body now, so he's temporarily in spirit form because he hasn't got a new body yet. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Paul knew it was Samuel. He bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers by prophets or dreams. I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David. Um, then go, go down to um, verse 19. The Lord will hand over Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Down in Sheol. The Lord will also hand over the army of, the, of Israel to the Philistines. Now look, can you see here, Samuel comes up from Sheol. Now, he tells Saul that he and his sons are going to die the next day and be with him. They were believers, all right. So, can you see that this place, Sheol, this place of the departed dead, is inside the earth, all right? It's a subterranean place. It is actually under the ground. So, what we're seeing is that there's, in the Old Testament, we have this place where people go when they die. Their bodies die because their spirit goes back to God. They're, they're dead. But they, the person, the being, the soul, carries on existing. They're quite conscious. When you die, when someone dies, they're quite conscious. And they all went, believers and unbelievers, in the Old Testament, down into this place in the centre of the earth somewhere, this place called Sheol. And uh, believers and unbelievers went there. Incredible. But what we're going to see as we move through, as we move into the New Testament and the camera comes out more and more, what we're going to discover is that this place of the dead, Sheol, is quite a big place. And we're going to discover that it's made up of three quite different other places. So think of it like a continent with different countries in it. We're going to see that this place of the dead, Sheol, is made up of three different compartments. And each of these compartments is completely isolated and cut off from the others. All right. Now, the first one we're going to look at, remember we're saying this place, Sheol, the place of the departed dead, it has three compartments. I'm going to demonstrate this to you quite clearly. But the first one we're going to look at actually has nothing to do with human beings at all. Because there is a compartment in the centre of the earth, this place that the Old Testament calls Sheol, there's a place there that the Bible calls Tartarus. And it's a prison for a certain number of angels, fallen angels. It's a place where some evil spirits are being kept in prison. 
Now, if you go to 2p to 2.4, and I fully understand that at this point, some people think, what, is this guy some kind of spiritualist? You know, does, does he claim some esoteric knowledge? Or we've never heard this before. But I'm going to demonstrate this to you quite, quite clearly from the Bible. And in 2 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 4. And uh, this is really quite, quite amazing. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. And he says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and that is definitely the word for angel, there's no translation variation there at all, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, there's a note there, what does it say? Tartarus, the Greek word is Tartaro place called Tartaro, Tartarus. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. Basically, what he's saying, he's saying, look, be assured that God is going to judge wickedness. And he says, look, he judged angels and sent them to Tartarus. He judged the ancient world with a flood. He's giving all these examples. He says, be absolutely assured, God will judge the world again. Next time it's going to be judged with fire, isn't it? But the point is, he gives here an example of God's judgment that there are angels that are actually imprisoned, in dungeoned in a place called Tartarus. I mean, absolutely amazing. And uh, they're being held there until the judgment. Judgment will be the last days, and uh, we'll get uh, to that later on. Now, who are these angels in prison? What on earth is going on here? Right, well, the clue is the reference there to the time of Noah. So if you go to uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, and let's see if we can establish what's going on here with angels actually being uh, imprisoned in a place called Tartarus. So find, did I say Genesis? Yes, I did. Genesis chapter 6, yeah, that's right, and verse 1. Now then, got quite a strange scripture here, but all will become clear. And this is kind of in the immediate lead-up to the flood, and one of the reasons for it. And it says, when men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and the Nephilim were the giants. Now, here, what it's saying is that God said, once the sons of God did this, they took the daughters of men to wife. Here, God says, their days will be 120 years, and it was 120 years later that the flood came, you see. So the flood was directly a judgment, partly, for what was going on here. So we've got to ask the question, who are these sons of God? And if you go to um, the book of Job, and find chapter 38, we can answer that question. Job 
chapter 38, because I know the sons of God is a phrase that gets used for uh, different people, and uh, but we're interested in what it referred to at this point in, in history. Job 38 and verses 4 to 7. Now this is God asking Job a load of questions that Job cannot possibly answer. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, if your translation's got angels there, look in the note at the bottom. It's sons of God. He's speaking to Job and he's saying, when I created the earth, the sons of God, the angels, sang for joy. Sons of God was a word at this point that referred to angels. So whatever was happening on this Genesis 6 thing, when the sons of God took to wife the daughters of men, it was something that some of the demons got up to. Now, if we ask the question, so why are angels called sons of God? We've just got to digress a bit here, because we're sons of God, aren't we? What's, what, what's going on here? Well, in the Bible, you'll find that this phrase, sons of God, is used in a very particular way. It's used of angels. It's used of Adam. If you read Luke's genealogy of Jesus that goes right back to Adam, it says, Adam, the son of God. It's used of the nation of Israel. Israel is likened to the Son of God. It's used of Jesus himself, obviously, and it is also used of believers, you and I. Now, why is that? Well, I'll tell you, the phrase Son of God refers to any creation that came about <laughs> as the direct supernatural working of God, not anything that came through natural means. So therefore, what we've got here, the angels were created by direct fiat by God. They weren't a natural creation. So they're sons of God. Adam, Adam was created directly by God's supernatural power. He didn't have a mum and a dad. Whereas obviously, human beings after Adam all had mums and dads. So the son of God created by God's supernatural power. Israel as a nation, what was special about Israel? Well, it wasn't a normal country. It came into being because God conjured it into being. You see, it wasn't there already, it didn't evolve naturally, God created it there and then. Jesus, obviously Jesus was the Son of God, when, when the second person of the Trinity became a human being, wow, the direct supernatural power of God. And you and I, when we're born again, we're a new creation, the direct supernatural power of God. That's why we're sons of God. So this phrase, Son of God, refers to any being that is the result of God's supernatural creative power and nothing that has come about normally that's why you and i now that we're christians are called the sons of god so you've got the angels as sons of god you know doing this thing with the daughters of men and as a result of that you get the nephilim and you know sort of like this is literally satan playing around with human genetics here and uh, so that's why we're sons of God, and why this, this phrase, sons of God, here, refers to the angels. Now, um, if you go to Jude, verse 6, so in the New Testament, go to Jude, and we can actually see a passage that throws more light on this. It's one of those kind of 
passages that isn't easy to understand, but in the light of what we've said, I, I think it'll make sense. Uh, and then we're going to look at another passage from the writing of, of Peter that, that will also kind of make more sense to us. Now, Jude and verse 6. And listen to this. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, I want to show you that these are the same angels that we saw Peter referring to, all right, who are held in chains against the day of judgment. We've got to do a little bit of Greek here, all right, because the secret is in the Greek, okay. It's definitely talking about angels, no problem at all. The Greek is clear. The angels who, now, two things. One, they did not keep their positions of authority. And two, abandoned their own home. Now, in this thing, positions of authority, the relevant Greek word here is, is arche, word of authority. And it, 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 it's sort of, it's hierarchy. It's where we get hierarchy from. Um, you, you get archangel, you get an arch criminal, possibly even worse, an archbishop. You, know, you see the, the idea here. And so what we've got here is that there are some angels who lowered themselves below where they should have been in the hierarchy. That, that, that's what the Greek is saying. Now, get this, we know from the book of Hebrews that when Jesus became a human being, when the second person of the Trinity, born of the Virgin Mary, became a human being through that birth, the writers of the Hebrews tells us that he became a little lower than the angels. Now, obviously, as God himself, Jesus is God. Before he became a human being, he was over the angels. Of course he was. But when he became a human being, just like you and me, he became a little lower than the angels. Now, obviously, we know that as a result of that, then he was exalted far above, you know, every, every name. But the point is, can you see, Jesus involved himself in a change of hierarchy. When he became a human being, he went from being above the angels as God to being a little below the angels. Now, let me tell you what the hierarchy of creation is, of God's creation. Before Jesus died and rose again, this was the hierarchy in the universe. God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the triune God. Top of the pile, always has been, always will be. Totally unique, uncreated. Then, angels. Angels were at the top of the hierarchy of the created order. Then, mankind. The world of men and women. Remember, Jesus became a little lower than the angels. Then, you've got the animals. Okay. Then you've got plant life. And of course there's always one or two people we know who we think are even lower than that. But in, in actual fact, that is the divine order that you had before Jesus died and rose again from the dead. It was God, of course, then the angels, then man, men and women, then the animals, then plant life. Okay? Now, when Jesus died and rose again, he created an hierarchy change. Another one. 
Remember, he was at the top, then there was the angels, he became a human being. And as a human being, was below the angels. But of course, having died and been raised again from the dead, he was glorified. He was given the name above every name. But as a man, as a man, there's a glorified man sitting on the right hand of God in heaven. All right? The second person of the Trinity became a man, and he will remain a man. He will always be a man, but he is glorified. So therefore, we have an hierarchy change, and the hierarchy change is this. There is God, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next, in the hierarchy, it's believers. Now, why is that? Because when we're born again, we're raised up with Jesus in heavenly places. All right? Then you get angels. Then you get men and women who aren't born again, who aren't in God's kingdom. Then you get the animals. Then you get the plant life. All right. So can you see that, that, that change that happened there? And um, like how can I say in, in, in Judas, well, you know, it, it talks about this, this fight that there was in the Old Testament between uh, the archangel Michael and Satan, who were kind of you know, either on a par or Satan probably a little bit above Michael. Okay? They're fighting over the body of Moses. And you'll remember that in order to, to deal with Satan, Michael said to him, the Lord rebuke you, because he had to refer to an authority that was higher than Satan, and that only God. So the Lord rebuke you. But you and I as believers, what can we do with evil spirits? We can cast them out. We don't have to say the Lord cast you out. We can cast them out because we're above the angels. And indeed, the goody angels are there to serve us and help us in our salvation. So there's the hierarchy change. So therefore, what we've got is this. <clears throat> this reference, okay, to the, uh, these angels who, who left their positions of authority, it's referring to angels who in some mysterious way took a downgrade in the hierarchy, okay? They came down lower than their natural positions in the created order of angels. Now, we've got to go to the second thing about them to clarify this. But abandoned their own home. They abandoned their own home. Now, this word here for their home, they abandoned their home. So here you've got a son of God, an angel, all right? And what they do, and don't ask me how they did it, I don't understand angels, but they take an hierarchy drop, all right? They somehow change their form, they take an hierarchy drop. And they abandon their home. The word home here is the Greek word oikotirian. It means a habitation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, it's the word that Paul uses for the glorified body that we're going to get. In the Bible, it's the word used for a human physical body. So what we've literally got here is we have some angels, and they were the bad angels, demons, and this presumably would have happened before creation, I don't know. Well, it obviously happened before the time of Noah, put it like that. And um, so what they do is they come down in the hierarchy, and they leave, they somehow are able to exchange their angelic bodies for a body that was at least, well, parallel with human bodies because they could then have sexual, you know, intercourse with women and those women gave birth to these kind of half-breeds that were neither quite human nor angelic. Weird. But of course, what Satan's trying to do, he knows, he knows at this point in history, he knows that Messiah is going to be a human being. He got that from, you know, Jesus in the Garden of Eden. So if he can make, if he can genetically interfere 
with the human race, so and mutate it so there isn't a human race, he can muck up salvation because Messiah had to be a human being. So if there weren't any proper human beings left, Messiah couldn't come. That, I think, is what Satan's trying to do here. But the point is, what we've got is we've got demons who somehow can exchange their angelic bodies for human-type bodies, some sort of physical body that can actually have sex with a woman. I mean, it's, you know, and you'll find in the passage that it parallels this each time to homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is unnatural human relations sexual relations, men with men, unnatural, women with the same, unnatural, human beings, animals, unnatural, angels with human beings, unnatural. Can you see? That, that, that's the whole point. So what we've got here is that Jude refers to some angels who literally were able to take on a different order of body that could actually be like a human body and intermix with human beings. Hence, they took a drop down in the hierarchy level, because at this point in the Old Testament, angels were above all human beings. All right, The hierarchy change only came about when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. So, so here, here you've got you know, the, the, the sons of God you know, who, who come into and find that the, the daughters of men um, are, are fair. Now, if you go to Luke 8, we'll see a little bit more on this. So remember, we're talking, we're saying that these demons, for what they did back then, at the time of Noah, these demons have been locked up in Tartarus. God considered that what they did so seriously that he locked them up, and they've been down in Tartarus ever since, i.e. they are not free to roam the earth and the universe like the other demons are. Now, in Luke... Luke chapter 8, this is a little story that might make a little bit more sense to you now. Luke 8 verse 31, and it's Jesus uh, confronting uh, a, a, a load of demons who were in this guy in, um, in the Gerasene area. And in, in verse 31, it says, and these are the demons, you know, Jesus says, what is your name? Well, he's talking to the demoniac. But the demons reply, all right, you know, Jesus is just talking to the bloke. The demons speak through him, and they say our name's Legion because we're many, right? Listen to this. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. All right? So here, you see, here we've got some demons who are confronted with Jesus, the Son of God. They know who he is. They know that they're about to get cast out. They know that they've got buddies who have been down in the, you know, Tartarus for a couple of thousand years. They didn't want, well, longer than that, they didn't want to go and join them. And so they're saying to Jesus, don't send us down there. And they call it the abyss. And the Greek word here, abusus, bottom. And the other words sometimes translated the bottomless pit. So we've now ticked off two others of our names, haven't we? The abyss and the bottomless pit. Synonymous terms for Tartarus. And here you've got a group of demons who are begging Jesus, don't send us down to Tartarus. Now, the fact is, Jesus wasn't intending to send them down to Tartarus. Um, what he did instead was, was, was he let them go out to a herd of pigs. But can you see the point? Those demons knew about their buddies in Tartarus. They knew that Jesus had the power to send them there as well. Jesus wasn't planning to, but they didn't know that. Now, if you go to Revelation, while we're still on Tartarus. Revelation, find chapter 9.
And um, we're now in the Great Tribulation. After the rapture of the church, God's judgments poured out on the world for rejecting Jesus. God's judgments poured out on Israel further for rejecting Jesus. Only this time the judgment brings Israel through and they end up crying out for Jesus to come and save them and that's when Israel gets saved. But um, this is one of the judgments that happens halfway through the Great Tribulation. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. I saw a star had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now sometimes when you get stars in Revelation they're small asteroids. Other times they're angels, all right. Here it's an angel because it says the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. So here we have an angel who has the key, as it were, to the door of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth. Locusts always a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. And given power like that of scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, i.e. unbelievers. They were not given power to kill, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days it will seek death, men will seek death but not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. Now listen to this. Obviously it's greatly symbolic, but this is describing a grotesque creature that's neither one thing nor the other. And that's what these demons are. Maybe they've mutated even more. I don't know. But on their heads they wore something like crowns of gold. Their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. That means destroyer. This is something out of a science fiction film, isn't it? I mean, this is alien gone bananas. But that, that's the push behind this. You have here beings who were once angels and who did something that was incredibly perverted and took on physical bodies that they shouldn't have had. But at least at one time was sufficiently resembling a human body to have sex with a woman. Now there's not much of the human form left. They're grotesque. And it's all part of God's judgment. And it's, it's absolutely awful. What's interesting as well, we know too that at this point Satan is thrown out of heaven, all the angels and the demons, who up till now still have access to heaven, they're all thrown down on the earth as well. And what's interesting here is that, 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 that this stuff that these demons were, were kind of you know, being judged for went back before the flood. Now in the flood what happened? The earth was deluged from the waters that were around in the atmosphere, so the waters came from above but also we know that there was the fountain of the great deep which came up from below the earth. So the water judgment came from above and below. Now we know halfway through the period here that you've got Satan and the demons coming down having been kicked out of heaven, so coming down on the earth and you've got these demons who are at the centre of the earth coming up from the earth. It's like a flood of not water but of demonic power. Now if you go up to chapter 20 just so that we can, you know, finish with the bottomless pit, the abyss, Tartarus, once and for all. And uh, this is 
after the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus has come, established his kingdom on the earth. And he said, I saw an angel coming out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. All right? He let them out last time. And holding in his hand a great chain, he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bounds him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss and locked and sealed uh, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore till a thousand years were ended. Now all the demons and Satan get chucked down in his bottomless pit for a thousand years. All right. And they're released from it after the thousand years and, and thrown into Gehenna or the Lake of Fire. We'll get to there, uh, I would imagine, next week. So um, can you... Can you see that there? So we've got these demons down in Tartarus and they are in like one of the three compartments in the place of the dead that, that the Hebrew simply refers to as a blanket term of Sheol. Right, now let's, let's come to the second compartment now and this is the first of the compartments where human beings go when they die. Right, and it's Hades. We're going to look at a place in the Bible called Hades. Now, understand firstly that the word Hades in the Greek was simply the equivalent of the word Sheol in the Old Testament. So that originally, the place Hades, it means shades or all-receiving, as you're unseen. If, again, it was a generic term for everyone who died, the place where everyone went to, literally the place of the dead. But what we're going to see is that as the New Testament unfolds, the New Testament uses this word specifically for the place where unbelievers go when they die. Now, there's one exception to this that we've got to look at, or you'll get confused later. If you go to Acts, there is one place in the New Testament where it's used um, kind of as somewhere where believers can go as well. I, there's one place in the New Testament where it's used simply to mean anyone who dies, i.e. the equivalent of Sheol. And uh, if you find Acts 2 and verse 27 and then verse 31. Now this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost about the fact that Jesus has proved he's Messiah by being raised from the dead. And what's happening is we're going to see Peter simply quoting Old Testament scripture. All right? So let's let's let, let's do it. In verse 27, all right? Now this is this is quoting a psalm, all right? It's it's quoting actually Psalm 16 verses 8 to 11. But here it's got because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now the word grave there, if you look down in your thingy, it's Hades, all right. But of course here, it's simply refer, it's, he's quoting Old Testament scripture. So he's quoting the Hebrew, but of course it's being recorded in the Bible in the Greek. So the word Hades gets used. And it's just referring to the fact that the Old Testament taught that when Messiah died, his body wouldn't, he wouldn't be abandoned to Hades, i.e. the place of the dead, i.e. he would be raised again. And then um, in, in verse 31, and uh, Peter says, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, i.e. that's the word Hades, nor did his body see decay. And there, Peter is just repeating what he's just quoted in the psalm. 
But because he's quoting and referring to Hebrew scriptures, he's using the word Hades as simply the equivalent to the Greek word, uh, the Hebrew word Sheol, which meant just the place where all the dead go. Because, of course, to that extent, Jesus went to the place of the dead. So, taking the word Hades to just mean what Sheol does, the place of the dead, Jesus went to Hades. But remember, this only is used in this way here because it's Peter quoting from the Old Testament. In every other New Testament reference to Hades, what we're going to see is that it is used as the name of the compartment where unbelievers go, not as the compartment where believers go. All right? And this is what we're going to um, look at now in, in, in some detail. And, um, and as we look at Jesus' teaching on this, we'll also see the third compartment, which was where believers went when they died. So if you go to Luke 16, Luke 16, and find verse 19. Now, this is basically a parable. It's interesting, though, it's the only parable with someone who has a name in it. Now, parables were stories. But the point is, their surroundings were quite, quite, you know, a literal thing. So the Good Samaritan was possibly just a story. The Good Samaritan never existed. It was a story. But the point is, Samaritans exist. Robbers exist. Roads exist. Inns exist. Can you see? The setting is quite literal. However, in this story, even if it is just a parable, the setting is quite literal. But it's possible, because the parable has someone with a name, it could actually be a true story. Who knows? It doesn't matter one way or the other. It tells us what we need to know. Right, Luke 16 uh, and verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar named Lazarus. So there you have it. We've actually got a character with a name here. Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angel carried him to Abraham's side. The bosom of Abraham. Um, so we know that this guy was a believer. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, and if you look down at the note at the foot of your Bible, it doesn't say hell, it says Hades. In Hades, where he was in torment, he was an unbeliever. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he could see across to the other place, the other compartment where the believers were. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and call my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received good things, Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted, you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now then, can you see the point? Here we have the unbeliever's compartment. This rich man, he was an unbeliever, he died. His body goes in the grave. His spirit went back to God. We've seen him. But him, the real him, the soul, the person, the human being, is quite conscious and he's in Hades. It's a total transition. He died, was buried. In hell, he's in agony. Sorry, in Hades, he's in torment. 
It's bang like that. We're, death is a transition. There's no unconsciousness or anything like that. You might be unconscious before you die, but the moment you die, bang, you see. And so here he is in torment from fire. Now this is important as well. Although he no longer has a body at this point, his subjective experience of existence is as if he still does have a body. It's not a physical body, maybe some kind of spectral body or whatever, because obviously eventually people get a new body. We'll get onto that next week. But the point is, here he is, quite consciously, in Hades, suffering torment because he's an unbeliever. And he can see that there's another, apart, uh, another compartment over there where all the believers were, Abraham and all the people in the Old Testament who were believers and who were saved. Also as well, he was uh, the... the and the unbeliever is there until the great white throne judgment, until the end of human history. So unbelievers, they're down in Hades, and that's where they stay until the great white throne judgment, which we'll see next time. Um, in the believer's compartment, Abraham's side, all right, it was called, this pitch of great closeness and fellowship, it's bliss, it's rest, it's absolutely wonderful. And all the dead believers at this time, during the life of Jesus, every dead believer since Adam and Eve, because they got saved, they're all there in the believer's compartment. And notice as well, this believer, this Lazarus, this beggar, he was carried there by the angels. I mean, what a contrast to the rich man who was in Hades and in torment. Carried to bliss by the angels, absolutely incredible. But this believer's compartment has another name. If you go to Luke chapter 23, and in verse 39, Luke 23 and verse 39, and this is when Jesus is dying, Luke 23, verse 39. And this was the thief who, who got saved. Um, one of the criminals who hung there said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. And then in verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Abraham's bosom was called paradise. And uh, it's interesting as well in verse 46, just quickly. When Jesus died... He says, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. See, the spirit, the human spirit returns to God. Jesus returned it to God himself. He didn't have it returned for him. He was in complete control of his death. But there's the point. Jesus committed his spirit into Father's hands. He died physically. His body went into the grave. His spirit returned to God. And he, him, Jesus, went down into paradise. And paradise... Um, is a, 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 Greek, a, a Persian word and it means walled garden. It means a garden, garden with a wall around it. And uh, remember that they were both carried there by the angels. Yeah, that's beautiful, this thief on the cross who's dying with Jesus and was carried into paradise with Jesus with the angels. Now it's just cross-reference, this is important. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 14. Back to location here. Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the, the Greek word there is bowels, right down the middle of your body. So the point is there we have another location, that paradise and 
Hades, but down in the centre of the earth. Okay. Um, and uh, yes, I think I think we've got time to uh, to do this. We've got Hades, Paradise, Tartarus, down into the centre of the earth. Jesus dies and he's down there for three days and three nights. Go to 1 Peter, chapter 3. just want to show you something that Jesus did while he was down there. He had three days and three nights in the centre of the earth. He was in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, all right, with a thief and all the other believers. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, but he paid a visit somewhere else. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So his body died, made, he went down, the Holy Spirit took him down into paradise. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now these spirits in prison, right, who are they? The word preached is misleading. The Greek word here specifically means proclamation. It could be a proclamation of the gospel, but when you get the word preach, you think of almost trying to get a response. This is simply a proclamation. What's Jesus doing here? He's died. He's defeated Satan once and for all. Every evil spirit that there was, including Satan himself, knew that they were beaten, except the ones in Tartarus. Jesus is now down in paradise. He's beaten them. He's died. His death on the cross, it is finished. He's redeemed mankind. What does he do? He zaps over to these spirits, these fallen angels in Tartarus, and he makes sure that they know. He says, hi guys, I've won. It's over. You're beat once and for all. And that's what he's doing. Zapping over to Tartarus to make sure that this remaining group of demons who don't know that it's all over for them, who don't know that salvation has been won, it's been completed, Jesus shoots over and uh, he makes sure that they do know it. And um, that's, that's what he was, he was doing there. So what have we got so far? Up until the death of Jesus, we have three compartments in the centre of the earth. We have one called Tartarus, where you have these demons who took on physical bodies and, and who did this thing, procreating, and they, they're thrown down, they're, they're in prison, in Tartarus, um, this dungeon for demons. And they've been there ever since the time of Noah and compartment number one, Tartarus. And um, they're going to stay there, right? That's where they are. They're still there now. Um, we've seen an unbelievers compartment called Hades. That's where unbelievers go. And um, they're still there. That, that's the way it was the case before Jesus rose again. It's the case up till now. Unbelievers, when they die, go down into Hades in torment. What about the believers? Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. When he does... A monumental change is about to occur in what's happening in the centre of the earth. And uh, to find out what this monumental change is and what it means for us as believers when we die, come back next week and find out.